0: For this episode, we're doing something a little bit different. In preparation for the Midsummer Scream Horror Convention, we've taken this time to compile some of your favorite stories from our
1: past episodes. But don't worry, we'll be back next week with some brand new tales to share with you all. For now, enjoy the very best of Odd Trails. Forget facts, forget
0: logic, forget everything that seems real. Trust. Believe. (laughs) This story contains some graphic details involving a suicide, so listener discretion is advised. From the onset, you should know that none of the paranormal events mentioned in this story were witnessed by me personally. However, that doesn't make any difference. This is something that has haunted me for close to 40 years now. I first met Bill in elementary school. This would have been 1966. Bill was one of the strangest friends that I had ever known. For example, in elementary school, at recess, instead of playing games on the playground with the rest of us, he would spend the entire period running around the perimeter of the playground with his arms extended behind him, making woo-woo sounds, pretending that he was on a train. This would go on the entire duration of both recess periods, morning and afternoon. Bill was a smart guy and highly creative to the point where, when he graduated from high school, he was able to land a position right away at one of the major newspapers in our city as a staff photographer. That was a lucky break for him, as it meant that he could move away from home right away. Bill's family was strange, especially his father, a rather severe and profoundly religious man that ruled the roost to the point where his mother was little more than a cipher. His siblings were odd, too, but I didn't get to know them very well. Truth to tell, going to Bill's house made me uncomfortable, so I seldom visited him there. Bill moved into a nice house with a couple of roommates, not too far from the university that I was attending back then. I'd spend time at his place every once in a while. It would have been around... 1975. One evening, we were sitting in his living room drinking beers, listening to music, and taking occasional hits from his outrageous bong when he suddenly got very serious and asked me the strangest question I had ever heard, still to this day Have you ever seen a black hand floating behind me? I said no and gave him a very funny look. He went on to explain that both his roommates and a few guests have been freaked out by the apparition of a disembodied black hand, occasionally glimpsed floating in the air a couple of feet behind him, pointing at him as he walks around the house. He suspected they're just fucking with him, as they seem pretty serious. He thought he'd ask some of his other friends if any of them had seen anything like this. Well, no. I hadn't seen such a thing, and for the rest of the time I knew Bill, I never did see anything like that at all. Though for a while after he asked this question, I did keep a lookout. Bill himself never mentioned it to me again. Fast forward five years, Bill killed himself with a shotgun. Over the course of those five years, Bill went from a guy that pretty much had fantastic prospects. For a successful career, to a mess that couldn't hold down the simplest of jobs. Without going into too much detail, principally because I could fill a book with anecdotes, Bill changed drastically. He became unstable, lost his job, had to move back home with his crazy family, was committed twice, married, divorced, remarried, divorced, then remarried again. When he took his own life, I hadn't seen him for close to a year. After hearing the sad news of what he had done, I went to his funeral with another friend. To our horror, the casket was open, and there was Bill's strange father standing there, staring at his son. It was surreal. After the funeral, we went to the reception, and it was here that I first met Bill's third wife who, to my surprise, seemed like a fairly normal and nice person. I should add that he met his first wife at an asylum when he was committed the first time, so my expectations weren't necessarily high. After visiting for a bit, she told me something offhand that almost caused me to faint on the spot. Certainly, I blanched visibly. It's haunted me since that day. I still don't know what to think of it. She said that the couple of days before Bill had killed himself, she walked in the room and saw this black hand floating in the air right behind him, pointing at the back of his head, then touching it. It had been years since Bill told me that story. One evening between bong hits. And at that time, the hand was reportedly floating a few feet behind him, not close, certainly not touching. I told her what Bill said to me years ago, which of course scared her. She said he had never mentioned any of it to her. And that was the first and only time she'd ever seen anything. It was such a weird and transitory thing that she didn't mention it to him. So what is the takeaway of this? What do I think happened? At some point in Bill's life, something attached itself to him following, and closing in. And over the course of years, as it got closer and closer, Bill became madder and madder, to the point that he finally couldn't take it anymore and ended his life. Thinking back to the oddness, even in elementary school, of Bill, whatever this was could have been following him way back then, maybe even from birth. I don't really know any other way to explain it. I've been asked how Bill had an open casket funeral, and I wondered the same thing when I saw the open casket at the funeral service. Seeing this was very disturbing. My friend and I sat at the back of the chapel and didn't want to walk up to the casket to view our friend or talk to family, as one would expect under normal circumstances. To our dismay, when the service was over, everyone had to exit via procession by the casket, to view the remains. It was obvious the funeral home had to work overtime to make Bill presentable. His eyes were definitely too far apart. Things were slightly misshapen with his head. Any other person would never have put such remains on display. But as I noted, Bill's father was an odd, severe person, and doing this was very much like him. It's been my belief that the spot his wife saw the hand touching on the back of Bill's head is where the blast exited. But I can't know this for sure. I know Bill put the gun to his mouth so that the exit would have been the back of his head. Bill was a very interesting person, and I've always regretted that I didn't grow old with him as a friend. Because before he lost his mind, He was a genuinely nice guy. Very fun to be around. Wherever you are now, Bill, I hope you're at peace.
1: When I was a kid, my parents took my sister and I to several national parks. Those parks were basically my Disneyland, so I guess it makes sense that I always wanted to do something involving wildlife and the outdoors as a career. Well, I retired from the National Park Service a few years ago. I started off as a part-time seasonal ranger, which is how most aspiring park rangers tend to start out in the hopes of eventually being offered a full-time position. I won't continue to ramble on too much with my career biography, but there are two types of rangers. Interpretive, which are the ones who give tours and whatnot, and law enforcement officers, which is what I was. I eventually became chief ranger at a popular location on the West Coast. Being the chief ranger, I had the privilege of living on the park grounds itself, in a small house provided by the National Park Service. It took 45 minutes to get into town, but other than those sort of inconveniences, the reclusiveness was amazing. Stepping out of my home every day and being in the midst of hundreds of acres of natural land is a feeling like no other. I lived there year-round with my wife and two dogs. Okay, enough gushing. One night, like... Most other nights, I let my dog out before I turned in for bed and was stargazing while they were doing their business. Then suddenly, both dogs completely lost their minds and started barking bananas. Even on the rare occasion that somebody pulled up to the driveway or came to the door, they never barked like this. Even when wild animals would wander up to the house, the dogs just kind of went into a curious alert mode, but didn't make much of a fuss, so I had no idea what the hell could have gotten them so stirred up. I stood there for a moment, trying to see whatever it is they saw. When I didn't see anything, I thought maybe it was actually just another person approaching the property, but I was just unable to see them. So I went inside and grabbed my gun and flashlight, then came back outside and kept my back against the wall listening to the dogs and waiting to hear anything else. After a few longer seconds of their incessant barking, I decided to walk out to where I was before. That's when I saw it. A glowing orb of sorts, floating about thirty feet off the ground, right around where the property turns into denser woods. All I could make out was the light itself. I didn't see any structural body to it. It was mostly white, but with a faint blue hue. Just a really big, twinkling star, almost like the ones I had just been admiring moments earlier. My depth perception felt a bit off, but based on where I felt I saw this thing, I'd guess it was no more than three to five feet in diameter. As soon as I had the mind to point my flashlight at it, I got what I can only describe as a really bad brain freeze and began to feel incredibly weak and nauseous. I'd admit, it'd be kind of cool to say I woke up to aliens liposuctioning the fat from my stomach with a metallic hose and lived to tell the tale, but nothing that blatant happened. However, sometimes not knowing is even more unsettling. All I remember after experiencing those horrible body sensations is waking up on the ground with one of my dogs licking my face. I still had my gun, but my flashlight was gone. I was able to go back inside to immediately check on my wife, and thank God, she was safe in bed asleep. I checked the time, and sure enough, two hours had passed. I later verified this by checking the time stamp of a late email I sent, right before going outside with the dogs. I then felt like I had to vomit, so I turned on the bathroom light and saw I had... Dried blood surrounding my mouth and nose. I threw up, but only bile came out. As I was washing up, I noticed my wedding ring was missing too. It has never once even come close to falling off on its own, and I'd definitely remember taking it off, so I'm positive I was wearing it when I went outside. I took an emergency leave of absence that morning and went to see a doctor. I just said I suddenly started having really bad migraines, accompanied by nausea. After some routine questions, I was simply offered migraine medication after my vitals were checked. I didn't want anybody at work thinking I've lost my mind or that I'm not fit for work, so I've only ever told my wife and best friend this story. And especially now that I'm retired, there's no harm in sharing. My wife believes me, and... Luckily, didn't think it's just a far-fetched alibi for losing my wedding ring. Although, when I got to the part about the ring, I could tell she at least considered the option. As we were coming up with explanations, she thought maybe, emphasis on maybe, if I did actually get visited by aliens or whatever else, maybe they took my ring for its platinum. Who knows? I guess the flashlight was just a souvenir.
0: I lived in an apartment in New York City that was, no joke, smaller than a public restroom. I could barely fit my twin mattress on the floor. It was a miserable living situation to say the least. I worked at a local bodega, stocking the shelves every morning. I was young, lazy, and completely taken by surprise when I met this beautiful woman named Debbie. She actually showed a romantic interest in me. We began dating that summer but things were cut short when she had to go back to the West Coast. See, she was only staying with her aunt there in the city for a few months to help with some family issues. It was an amazing summer though. One I never imagined I would experience. We kept in touch by mail and over the phone whenever we could afford the long distance phone calls. One day she sent me a letter in this letter. She explained that she didn't want to live so far away and confessed her love for me while I was ecstatic. I was also broke and hardly lived in a place big enough for two people. I called her immediately and confessed my worries and the situation to her. Debbie was a bit disappointed at first, but reluctantly suggested that I move to California with her. She lived in a double-wide trailer. She had inherited it from her grandmother. A huge upgrade from my coffin-sized apartment. I felt a bit guilty accepting such an offer. Plus, as I said... She was very reluctant at first. Something about it just didn't feel right. It felt like I crushed her dreams of leaving her trailer in California to come live in the big city with her new boyfriend. I quit my job at the bodega and flew out to California just as quickly as I could. At the airport, I waited anxiously for Debbie to arrive. However, instead of the cheery, bright-eyed girl that I immediately fell for, I was greeted by someone very different. This was not the girl that I spent my summer with. I mean, it was Debbie. There was no mistaking that. But the cheeriness was now a dark sense of despair. Her once bright eyes were now bloodshot and sunken in. Her hair looked as if it hadn't seen a brush in weeks, clothes wrinkled and dirty. I'm ashamed to admit that at that moment, I felt like I might have made a big mistake. She did manage to greet me with a very big, beautiful smile and embrace. This was definitely my Debbie, but something was very, very wrong. She drove us back to her trailer. On the way there, she seemed to brighten up just a bit. We talked about our time apart and how happy we were to finally see each other again. Well, when I say that we talked about our time apart, what I really mean is I talked about my time apart from her she sidestepped every attempt I made to learn more about hers. It was odd, but I didn't think too much of it at the time. When I walked into the door of Debbie's place, I was shocked as I was greeted by a room full of faces. Faces of literally hundreds of porcelain dolls. They were everywhere, shelf upon shelf, all along the surface of every wall doll upon doll, each neatly placed and in perfect condition. Except for one. In the middle of the room lay a single porcelain doll, as if a child had been playing with it and just left it there. It was such an eerie feeling. The room felt heavy. It almost sucked the life out of you just being in there. I again felt like I might have made a huge mistake. Debbie assured me that they weren't hers. Rather, they were an obsessive collection of her late grandmother. She didn't have the heart to get rid of them, and she didn't have anywhere else to store them. I gave her my sympathies and told her that it wasn't going to bother me too much. I was just happy to finally be with her. The trailer definitely belonged to an older woman, that's for sure. She even left the plastic covering over the furniture that no doubt her grandmother had used to keep it new. Still, as creepy as it was, it was ten times better than my crap hole in New York. I picked up the doll from the center of the room and handed it to Debbie. She looked at the doll and placed it back on one of the shelves. Now she kept her back to me as she did this, but just sort of stood there for a few seconds. Before she let out a long sigh, she turned back with the biggest and most unsettling smile that I had ever seen from her. It was like she was pretending to be a human. Her mouth was smiling, but her eyes were not. It was very forced and uncomfortable. Her dark and haggard hair sunken in eyes, her dirty, loose-fitting clothes. The way that she was slightly hunched over, it was enough to send chills down anyone's spine. Yep. I definitely made a huge mistake. Debbie wasn't well, but I didn't want to abandon her, and I didn't want to be rude. I was in love with her, after all. I needed to be there for her and see this through. Maybe I could help, but I needed to find out what was going on. She was hiding something from me. After I settled in, we decided to go grab a burger for dinner since we were both pretty exhausted, and she hardly had anything in the fridge at her place. While we were at the burger place, she seemed to brighten up yet again. She seemed more like the old Debbie that I met back at home. I was happy to see this side of her again. I almost teared up with joy. After some playful flirting and joking around, I finally asked her, what was bothering her? I told her about how she seemed different and all out of sorts. She told me that she hadn't been sleeping. She was hesitant to even have me move out there with her. I asked why. She said she's being visited by something at night. She thinks it's the ghost of her grandmother. I thought this sounded ridiculous. Obviously, there was something wrong in Debbie's life, but I didn't believe in ghosts or such things. I asked her why she assumed she was being visited by the ghost of her grandmother. I didn't want to be rude, and I didn't want to make things worse by telling her that I thought she was crazy. The next words out of her mouth chilled me to the bone. I'll never forget them, she said. She tells me things only my grandmother would know. I didn't press any further. I'll admit, I was honestly terrified at that point, and I didn't want to know any more about it. We finished up and went back to the trailer. The rest of the evening went smoothly. No more talk of ghosts and deceased grandmothers. Just a pleasant night with my girl. I already felt as if Summer Debbie was making her way back to the surface, convinced that all she needed was some positive experiences with a loved one to bounce back. I decided to do my very best to make that happen. I thought things were going to be just fine. I was very, very wrong. That night... I was woken up by the sound of glass breaking somewhere in the trailer. I lay there for a moment, on my side, waiting for maybe another sound, just to make sure it wasn't something that I had dreamed up due to the stress of the previous day. I waited for about two minutes, until it happened again. Another crash. It sounded like a plate being thrown hard on the other side of the bedroom wall. I turned to Debbie to ask if she was all right. Only to find her sitting upright in bed, eyes wide and focused on the wall, staring intently. She looked absolutely insane at that moment. I asked if she was all right. She didn't say a word. She just stared at the wall motionless, as if she were in some kind of trance. I got out of bed and made my way into the living room that shared the wall with the bedroom where I heard the crashing sounds. There on the floor, lay two broken porcelain dolls that had fallen from the shelf above. Relieved, but also a bit confused, I cleaned up the glass and threw the pieces and the dolls in the trash. How the hell did a couple of falling dolls make such a loud crashing noise against the wall? It didn't make sense. It literally sounded like someone threw those things against the wall. That feeling began to sink deeper now, the feeling that I had made a very big mistake. When I returned to bed, Debbie was already asleep. I had a hard time falling asleep myself, but I did manage to pass out just before sunup. I slept later than I can ever remember, at least till one. Debbie was up, dressed and had breakfast ready, waiting for me. I asked her about what happened the night before. She paused for nearly a full minute, as if she didn't really understand the question. Then responded, saying that it was her grandmother. She was upset. That Debbie had brought someone else to live in the trailer. She said that when her grandmother would get mad, she would knock the dolls off the shelves. This has happened before? I asked. Yes, she responded. Yes, she's very angry about you being here. I don't know what to do. The rest of the day went on fine. No falling dolls, no ghosts, no rattling chains or disembodied moans just a wonderful day with debbie however that evening while we were watching television out of the corner of my eye i saw it a dark black figure shot down the hall it was so fast i didn't really get a good look at it i just assumed it was a shadow from some illuminating light outside until i saw it again it shot down the hall in the opposite direction Just a second later, a single porcelain doll fell from one of the shelves where the shadow had passed. Luckily, this one did not shatter into pieces like the others. I looked up at Debbie, and she kept her gaze fixated on the TV, pretending not to have noticed what just transpired. But I saw tears forming in her eyes. She was frozen in fear. She didn't want to look at or acknowledge what was happening. I didn't say a word, I just got up and put the doll back on the shelf. We didn't speak of the matter. I didn't want to trigger some kind of episode or make things worse, but that was all the proof I needed. Debbie was not lying. Right then and there, I became a believer. I know what I saw, and I know that Debbie saw it too. Whatever kind of trickster spirit that made that trailer its home didn't give up, though. The events of the previous night occurred again, but there were more dolls. That night, at least three or four fell from the shelves, this time halfway across the room. These dolls weren't actually falling, they they were being thrown at least five to seven feet from where they sat on the shelves. While Debbie's condition only worsened, as the strange activity progressed, she did say that the ghost had stopped talking to her when I moved in. I brought up the idea of either bringing a priest in or even trying to sell the trailer to get a smaller place closer to Debbie's job. But she wouldn't have it. She felt like she was obligated to stay in the trailer, some kind of guilt or attachment to that place that I'll never understand. I would continue to see this shadow figure at all times of the day, always out of the corner of my eye. I noticed odd things beginning to happen as the days went on. My hair started falling out. Certain rooms of the trailer would smell like something sour, like urine. After the first couple of weeks, living there quickly became a nightmare for both of us. The doll activity only increased. We even tried gluing and nailing the dolls to the shelves, but we would wake up to find them having been ripped off of the shelves and thrown across the room, broken into pieces. The final straw came one night when Debbie woke up screaming. Her face was wild. I couldn't control her. She thrashed around in bed like she was in some kind of intense pain. The following morning, we found three deep scratches on her left side. The skin around it was heavily bruised. We couldn't take any more. I convinced her to leave that place with me right then and there. We went to stay with one of her co-workers a few blocks away for a couple of months while we emptied out the trailer and found a buyer. I got a job at a local grocery store and we got an apartment in town. But things were different then. The events of that trailer changed us. I don't know what evil thing attached itself to that place, and I don't know why. I don't think I ever will. Debbie and I split the following year. I still keep in touch with her from time to time on Facebook. But we never talk about what happened, just the pleasant memories from that summer in New York. I think that's for the best. Whenever I do try to bring it up or talk about it with someone, bad things start to happen again. I almost regret even sending this story to you.
1: Years ago, when I was in my twenties, I worked at a haunted house. That had the luck to rent an abandoned hospital for a few seasons a major health company had built a brand new facility on the other side of the city and sold the old building to an investor who rented it to us the hospital had a reputation for being haunted even when it was in operation when the community heard what we were doing it generated a lot of buzz and people would tell us stories about their haunted experiences there. There were a few main entities that had shown up in multiple encounters, the token woman in white who had supposedly died during childbirth and was helpful, a little girl that loved mischief and humor, and a cranky man in his early 50s that people referred to as Overall Joe. At that time, as a fresh hobbyist paranormal investigator, I was skeptical but excited. The hospital did not disappoint. While myself and several friends had encounters with the little girl at different times across several years, I guess you could say I developed a bit of a rival relationship with Overall Joe. Some backstory. Overall Joe was supposedly a maintenance man. A janitor, sort of a blue-collar, jack-of-all-trades that worked in the hospital in the 1950s. He had no wife or family, so he lived in the maintenance room in the basement of the hospital. He had a small, single bed, barely more than a cot, tucked into the room. The maintenance room is attached to a large room with backup diesel generators, so that if the power went out, the life-saving machines above would continue functioning. Keeping them in good shape was part of Joe's job. Also in the basement is a small mental ward with a half-dozen doors, the morgue, some classrooms for continued education, and the cafeteria. The mental ward and the cafeteria are separated by a long hallway that runs the length of the entire hospital. One day, while overall Joe was in the cafeteria getting lunch, one of the more violent mental patients escaped from the mental ward. Somehow, this patient made it all the way down the long hallway with no one stopping him until they got to the cafeteria. Apparently, Joe tried to help grab the patient, but instead, they jumped on top of him, knocking him over. Before anyone could pull the patient off, they had strangled Joe to death there on the floor. For decades later, Nurses and security on night shift would see a man from time to time wandering the hospital dressed in maintenance overalls, hence the name Overall Joe. He wore a white t-shirt underneath the overalls, a flannel jacket over the top, and he had dark brown hair with a bit of gray and a matching beard. When we took occupancy and began setting up the haunted house, things were pretty quiet for the first few weeks. The power to the building had been shut down for years, so we had our own gas generators we used to run lights and power equipment, such as fog machines. A few nights before we opened, weird things started happening. I think most of the people working there have at least one story. The entities seemed to mostly manifest when we were alone or in small groups. The first year, Jack tried to scare us out, One of my friends ran the -the glow-in-the-dark hockey mask room, and I was stationed just outside. One night, when his wife and friend were helping him, they called me in because when they turned off the light to wait for the next group, they could hear an older man standing behind them in the pitch black, breathing heavily. They knew I had experience with ghost stuff and wanted to know what to do. They were ready to bail. I told them not to worry, just ignore it. If overall Joe wanted to get to them, he'd have to come through me first. As soon as I got back to my post, all of the black covering that was used to hide our makeshift walls billowed out, as if hit by a gust of wind, and I heard a man's low, throaty laugh on the other side of it. I had just called Joe out, and he was going to see if I was bluffing. He didn't do much else to me that first season, but others weren't so lucky. There was an old surgeon prep and changing room adjacent to my area where one girl was dressed in gauze and had makeup to make her look like a burn victim. Part of her act was that she had about 20 tea light candles arranged in a small circle. It was meant to be more creepy than scary. One night soon after the above incident, I heard a blood-curdling scream from that room, so I quickly jogged over to find out what was going on. You expect screams in a haunted attraction, but a group had not been through in a hot minute. The young woman was hunched over, crying into another actor's shoulder. With all of the doors to the room closed and no draft, she said her candles had gone out, one by one in a spiral. It started at the top of the circle, and then went around and in, the candle in the middle going out last. She said it happened in less than two seconds, fast but still slow enough that she could see the pattern. When that last candle went out, she'd heard a man's deep, quiet laugh behind her, taunting her. She quit that night and refused to set foot in the building ever again. The next year, I was assigned to a room near that same area, and that's when Joe sort of went, I remember you, and decided to mess around with me even more. Prior to even decorating, I was with two of the guys who ran maintenance and technical for our haunted house. We were doing a sweep of the basement to look at the possibility of extending the haunt down there that year. They walked side by side, and I brought up the rear. Everything seemed normal until we walked past the door to the diesel generators and the maintenance room, Joe's room, when I was suddenly shoved on my right shoulder, so hard and unexpectedly, that I lost my balance and hit the wall to my left. Instead of getting scared or angry, I just righted myself and said, "Nice try, Joe," under my breath. Other times that year when I was alone, I would occasionally hear someone walking around about ten feet behind me, only to turn around with my light, and no one would be there. Sometimes I would hear odd noises from empty rooms, things that would be moved when no one was around, small stuff like that. That was until one night while the attraction was open, there was an issue with one of the generators that caused all of our lights and power to go out. Someone from the tech crew came around to tell us to take a quiet ten-minute break while they got it fixed. I flipped on my LED light and made myself at home in the old oral surgery chair in my room, took out my flip phone, and called my girlfriend. While she and I were talking, one of the groups farther down the path had gotten scared because of the sudden lack of lights. One of the hosts was leading them down the hall in my direction. I turned my flashlight off so I wouldn't be visible. The group passed by and I spent several minutes alone, in the dark, listening to my girlfriend talk about her day. Suddenly, the hairs on the back of my neck and arms stood up. Something was wrong. It was pitch black in there without a light on, at 10pm in a room with no windows, so I flipped my light back on. My eyes had been looking in the direction of the hallway where the group had just passed, but standing just to the side of my gaze, close enough I could have reached out and touched his arm, was a man. He looked as solid as if he were just a lost customer. He was looking down, staring daggers at me. I can still picture in my head his white t-shirt, blue denim overalls, and red flannel jacket, with brown hair touched by silver, and a short brown beard and steel-gray eyes. I was a bit in shock, but I quickly recovered. I turned to look him in the eyes and was getting ready to say something, but he quickly vanished. Just blinked into nothing. I interrupted my girlfriend with an apology and said, Hey, sorry to cut this short, but I have to go. Joe's here. I stood up and searched around my room, then checked the adjacent areas, but he was gone. I had more experiences with Joe and the little girl entity over the years, but that experience stood out to me. He didn't really mess with me much after that. For the most part, it was small things to let me know he was still there. I don't consider myself psychic or an empath, but after that night, I felt like I earned a degree of respect from the old guy. I do know I'll never forget the night Overall Joe showed himself to me in the middle of a haunted hospital.
0: This experience occurred when I was about 15 or 16, I was with a friend of about the same age and his dad who lived in our neighborhood. We were in the woods behind our houses. We went into these woods many times to hike around and play paintball. However, on this day, we decided to go a little deeper into the woods just to check it out. This is an old forest that's protected wetlands. It's just a few square miles of land and surrounded by roads on all four sides located in the northeast U.S. We were wandering along. It was mid to late spring, so the forest was pretty lush and green, when one of us saw a small patch of white coming through the woods. It stood out pretty easily in contrast to the green leaves. So we decided to investigate. The three of us headed off in the direction towards this mysterious white spot coming through the leaves. If you've ever walked through dense woods, you'll know it's difficult to walk in a straight line because of fallen logs and brush. Anyway, we keep walking towards this object for what seems like quite a while. I've racked my brain, but really can't recall how long. However, this white object still had not come into focus. It still looks like a white blot, and it's just as far away as when we first spotted it. We really didn't think anything of it at this point, or at least I didn't, and we continued walking in the direction of this thing. It must have happened two or three times where we would walk towards this thing for a few minutes, stop, then notice that we still weren't getting any closer. At this point, I think there was a little tension building, but nothing too out of the ordinary yet. At some point, though, as we were getting closer, we noticed the object is starting to fill out. We can clearly see that it's a tiny white house on a hill. I'd say the structure was about the size of a shed that you might keep your lawnmower in. We were excited because how often do you come across something like that? It's still a little ways out, but, again, it's very obvious that this is a white house. We had seen it, and we had been walking towards it. So as we continue towards this little house, we lose it from our sight momentarily. We go up and over a hill in front of it. But as soon as we get to the top of this hill, the small white house is gone. We're confused as hell looking at each other, but we keep walking to the hill that we had previously seen this house on. Now this last part happened pretty quickly. We get to the top of the hill, still looking at all the other hills close by to see if maybe we just got turned around or something. Maybe we'd see the little house then. However, one of us noticed an old foundation in the ground at the top of this hill, exactly where the house had been. The shape of the foundation was exactly the size of this mysterious vanishing white house. I barely had time to notice the foundation when all three of us heard a growling-like sound. It got louder until it was as loud as a chainsaw. Nothing was said. However, the three of us sprinted out of that woods in the direction which we came. I don't recall ever discussing what happened to the other two that I was with that day. Since this has happened, I tried looking on Google Maps for some kind of indication that the house was there, and maybe we lost it. "'but the forest top is too thick. "'About a year and a half ago, "'I told my brother what had happened, "'and we went back to those woods "'looking for the house or foundation, "'but we didn't find anything, "'though our search wasn't very thorough "'because it was winter, "'and the snow had covered the ground.'
1: When it comes to spirits, aside from getting that fuzzy feeling of being watched or feeling like I'm not alone, I've had a few experiences where they actually broke through that plane. Maybe I'll share them at another time. This event in particular happened at my best friend's house and although we had a spirit at our house that would make itself known in small ways, this was my first big encounter. I was about 8 years old, and we were having a sleepover with the girls from our Girl Scout troop. My friend's house had a living room that also connected to a dining area when you walk in. To the left was a den where they would watch TV, and it had a halfway wall where you could see into the living room space. Anyways, after we all had dinner, we set up sleeping bags in the den to watch a movie I brought over. I remember it was Clue because I was so excited to show it to everyone. I set up my sleeping area on the couch in the back, so I had a view of the whole room, including a view of the living room. After watching the movie, we all settled in and fell asleep. Now, I have always had trouble sleeping. In fact, I still do. So me waking up in the middle of the night was nothing new. I do remember waking up pretty suddenly that night. This was in the 90s, and I didn't have a phone yet, so I wasn't sure what time it was. It just felt late. As I'm lying there, I notice a bright light coming from the living room. At first I thought, maybe it's a car, but as I start to focus on it, I can see that it's a fine line of light, as if the living room were two-dimensional and someone sliced through it. While I was trying to figure out if I was imagining things and trying to make sense of what I was looking at, a transparent figure walked out of the light, then another, and another, and another, until there were maybe ten figures. I noticed three went in the other direction, towards my friend's parents' room, while the other figures slowly came into the den. At this point, I'm laying as low as possible in my sleeping bag with the blanket pulled up to my face, but I'm keeping an eye on everything, just in shock. I confirmed that these were definitely spirits. I remember watching one figure in particular. He was a young man with short curly hair, and he walked over to my friend that was lying on the couch to my left. He turned his head and made direct eye contact with me, then put up his finger to his mouth, signaling for me to be quiet. I felt paralyzed. I didn't feel like we were in danger though, so I just laid there, stunned, as I watched each spirit approach each girl. They all knelt down beside them and looked like they were praying. Each spirit did their own thing. One would lay a hand on a girl's back, one signed the cross, another even bent over and looked like he gave a girl a kiss. There was one beside the girl who laid in front of the couch I was on, that's the closest any of them got to me. The spirit who noticed me stood up from his place and looked at me again, while the other spirits got up and slowly began making their way out of the den. The one watching me turned around and followed the others until they all began, one by one, going back into the slit of light. The spirits that had gone to her parents' room also returned. Then, just like that, the light disappeared like it was zipped up. I laid there in shock, trying to piece together what I had just witnessed. I remember touching my face and pinching my arm to make sure I was awake. I slowly sat up on the couch and decided to wake up my best friend. She grumbled while she followed me to the bathroom where I told her what happened and to my surprise she just shrugged it off and said something like, yeah, that happens a lot, they come here all the time. I was in disbelief but she reassured me that there was nothing to worry about, I mean they were praying for us. She is still my best friend and we don't talk about it anymore. But she has told me that they've been around when I was there sleeping over other times. Since they were so peaceful, she never felt afraid. I always wonder why only I woke up that night and not the others. Maybe because there were a lot of them and it was a lot of energy or something? I'm not sure. It has always been my solid proof of another realm where spirits exist And it always validated my other experiences, knowing that I'm not just crazy. It's also nice knowing that, just like anything else, there are good and bad things out there. And at that time, I was lucky to experience some of the good ones. (laughs) Thanks for listening to our first best of episode of Odd Trails. And if you were able to make it out to the Midsummer Scream Horror Convention in Long Beach, California this past weekend, we hope you enjoyed the show. We were recording this, obviously, before we actually did the show, so fingers crossed it didn't suck too much, but I'm going to go ahead and say we did one hell of a job.
0: Yeah, I I would say we did a hell of a job, and if it did suck, we're so, so sorry. So sorry. That being said, we got to start packing and jump on that plane in just a few hours, so we're going to cut things short here for this week's outro but as we said at the beginning of the show we'll be back with some brand new stories next week and a whole bunch of stupid spooky dialogue
1: <laughs> that was good I, I can't top that, that was good
0: is that alright? Um, yeah sure <laughs> okay. leave
1: this in. anyways
0: thanks for listening guys this week you have heard The Black Hand by Philip DeWalt Stories from a Park Ranger by Rory The Dollhouse by Wickerman, My Encounter with Overall Joe by Chris Disappearing House in the Woods by Shepherd 77 and finally, Visiting Spirits from Coral. All the stories you've heard this week were narrated and produced with the permission of their respective authors. If you got a story to share, send it over to stories at oddtrails.com, and don't forget to sign up for our Patreon so you can get access to the ad-free versions of all of these episodes at a higher bitrate for the highest quality listening experience. That's 320 kilobits per second. That's insane, right?
1: That's not bad. That's not too bad. It's not a wave, but... it it, it is good right it's it's rocking some waves i would say yeah it's approaching (laughs) never mind (laughs) everyone stay safe and don't forget to peace out disturb you, darling.